Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, a reading series that's been going on for many years. And um, I, Ellen Datlow, and Matt Kressel run this series. We curate it, and we um, we pick the, right, the readers. And um, it's once a month, the third Wednesday of every month, come rain or come shine, every season. Some are some readings are seasonals are seasonal are. I shouldn't have had that drink. I knew it. I didn't even drink it. Can you hear? Can you hear me in the back? All right, hold on. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm just not talking into the mic. Anyway, it's the third Wednesday of every month, and uh, we have great, a great lineup coming up in the next few months. We have June 18th, Paul Whitcover and Eileen Gunn. July 16th, Victor Laval and Sophia Samatar. August 20th, Karen Hewler, raise your hand. She's back there someplace. And Veronica Seamus. September 17th, we have Liana Renee Heber and Mary Robinette Cole. October 15th, we have E. Lily Yu and I think Genevieve Valentine, but I'm not going to confirm that. Uh-oh, was that me? That's me. Okay. November 19th, Nancy Kress and Jack Skillinstead. Um, December 17th, we have Rajan Khanna. Raise your hand. He's here. And someone, and to come. We're not sure who. Um, oh, actually, wait. What did Andy say? When's Andy doing it? Is that January, right? January. All right, well, we just have a new person, but I didn't add this here. Uh, January 21st, Andy Duncan is reading with someone. We're not sure yet. Uh, February 18th, we have Michael Al- Mike Allen and somebody else. So, here we are. And I just want... Ken Lou in April. It was somebody else. <laughs> We're filling up our calendar. Um, what was the thing I saw? Oh, a, a, an announcement. We're having a celebration of Lucia Shepard. I don't know if you know... Uh, some of you might be aware of Lucia Shepard's work. Come on. Either you're here or you're not, okay? <laughs> Lucius Shepard was a fantastic writer of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and he died um, a few months, several months ago. And we're having a celebration of his life and work on June 15th here on a Sunday, which is not our usual date. Um, we also have a regular June reading, but I just want people to know that they can come. Um, it'll be 7 to 9 <coughs> readings, and we can hang out and drink and do whatever we want. And, and we have at least several people who will be reading from his work, including uh, Catherine Dunn, who is a good friend of his. Um, Laird will be back and reading from Lucius's work. Uh, John Langan will be reading. And I didn't write the rest of it. A few other people, I forget who. Um, Jeff Ford might be there, I'm not sure. Um, and anyway, I hope you'll come to that. And there'll also be free books being given out. Um, he donated an edition, I guess, of a handbook of American prayer to a small Concord Free Press. Thank you. Concord Free Press. How do you know about them? Anyway, okay, Concord Free Press. <laughs> she knows everything. Okay. And um, they're donating a box of books. And now a lot of people who will be there have, will have already read it, but if you haven't, you know, or even if you have, take one and pass it on. They'll be giving these away at the reading, uh, the celebration. 
booksellers. We have booksellers. We have a bookseller back there who have copies of Paul. One of I don't know which of Paul's books. What in the Duncan? Swallowing, swallowing, swallowing the Duncan's eye and 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 Laird Barron's beautiful thing that awaits us all. And the croning is sold out apparently. Is it already? Okay. Uh, you guys didn't bring any more books to sell, did you? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, one more thing is, I just got my first copies of Best Horror of the Year number six. Um, Laird's in this book. And I want to give it away, but we have to figure out how. I right before I came here, I tweeted saying, "Give me ideas of how to give it away." We're not doing a trivia contest anymore. Birthday. Oh, all right. So we'll do it. So it's okay. Well, what do you have a better idea? Someone suggested monster yodels, but I said that's too noisy. No, we're not doing the best monster yodel. Um, we'll do the. What we'll do is the birthday closest to today. So scream out when your birthday is if it's soon. Oh God, I'll actually tell you when. Uh, you don't know? <laughs> if, uh, yes? When is it? June 7th. June 7th? Well, is anyone closer? Yes. I'm sorry, I can't hear. Two days ago. Oh, okay, we can go backwards. What's today? Well, that's, are you, you were two days ago or you were two days ago? You? I was, so, seven days. May 13th. Seven days ago? And 31st is when? 31st is seven. Today is the 21st. Okay, so that's 10 days. So you you are closer. Is anyone closer than seven days before or after? Going once. Going once. Uh, we want to see some photo ideas. All right. <laughs> no, okay, no. It's all right. We will believe you. Going, going twice. No one has a birthday closer than seven days before and after today? Going, going, gone. The guy gets it. Here. <laughs> Signed it, but if you want him to inscribe it to you, you can ask him during our break. We will be taking a break in between these. Okay, but anyway, I'll start. <clears throat> Laird Barron is the author of several books, including The Croning, Occultation, and The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All, um, which just won the Stoker, right? Am I an idiot? I can't really. Yeah, she just won the Stoker. I accepted for it. It's too many awards. It's award season. I can't keep track of what's up and what won. But yes, he just won. So that book just won the Stoker. Anyway, um, his work has also appeared in many magazines and anthologies, including Fearful Symmetries, which is about to come out, and Lovecraft Unbound. An expatriate Alaskan, Barron currently, currently resides in upstate New York. So please welcome Laird Barron. Well, thank you guys for <clears throat> thank you guys for being here tonight. This is my third time at KGB, and it's just it's always been a wonderful experience, and uh, I'm just honored to be here again. Uh, actually, I didn't realize I'd be here on the East Coast. The last time I read, I thought that would be the last time I'd be coming out this way for quite a while. And uh, as fortune would have it, I'm here permanently. I live up in the Mid Hudson Valley now, so I would just like to thank uh, Ellen and Matt for hosting the event and the KGB bar for putting it on. Um, also, I'd like to thank my agent, Janet Reed, for entertaining uh, my girlfriend and myself today, uh, Jessica. And <clears throat> before I begin reading, I just would like to acknowledge the loss of uh, Lucia Shepard, which, as Ellen said, we're going to come back next month and honor him with a, a night of readings, and I'll be here 
John Langan will be here, a bunch of people will be here, uh, and Michael Shea. Uh, I knew Lucius professionally. Lucius was one of the first people that ever greeted me uh, into the industry. I think I had sold two or three stories, and he and Jeff Ford and Michael Aidlaw contacted me and gave me a lot of encouragement, and that, that really meant a lot. Michael uh, Shea was a personal friend of mine, and uh, I've taken you know his loss very hard, as we all have. We, we lost a great, great writer, and I, um, you know, I feel very blessed to have spent. I, I was at um, San Jose World Fantasy back in 2009. And I actually spent a week. I was there for nine days. I was at the convention for nine days, and I spent at least a week of it at uh, the Shea's residence with him and his wife um, Linda, and they're just wonderful, wonderful people. But Michael meant the world to me when I first got into the business. And he actually was, I think, the third or fourth author I ever met. I was, it was just synchronicity. I was at a convention, and I was talking to Mark Laidlaw, and he goes, you know, you really like Michael Shea's work. Well, because I'd always, you know, raved about it. He goes, I want you to meet somebody. And Michael had just happened to, to drive up and, and come unannounced. He used to do the Black Knight at a lot of these conventions. He wouldn't be part of them, but he would just show up. Him and his wife would show up. And when I did my first KGB, I didn't know anybody in the crowd at all except Ellen and Matt and a couple people. I came with John Langan. And um, who should come out of the crowd with Michael Shea? Him and his wife had flown up that very day from um, San Francisco. It was just completely, uh, they didn't even know I was reading. They just happened to walk into the room. And it was really nice to see his face. So I would like to propose a toast in the words of William Penn. For death is no more than a turning of us over from time to eternity. Here's to Michael Shea and Lucia Shepard. The story I'm going to read to you, it's called Slave Arm. Begin again. Don't begin with a white room. It's not. It's a black room. It's hothouse humid, oasis. <clears throat> an oasis in the subarctic night. A glitter ball strobes, sync with the aurora borealis, the background radiation of the stars. Scandalously clad kids slam dance to a metal band. The bass player wears an executioner's hood. The lead singer has a beard, just like the front man for clutch. Smokes a cheroot, swills whiskey, and breathes fire. Benny Three Trees and Jasper Hotstetler were flown in from Anchorage and Fairbanks to make sure this party's got its favors. Blotter, X, Jack Daniels, Vodka, Tequila, Blow, Crystal, Hash, Peyote, Smack, Black Bombers, Viagra, California Gold, Madnuska Thunderfuck, Nitrous. Window glass quivers like jelly and Dixie Cup shooters. It's 3 a.m. Fuck the police. Your friends are here. Your enemies are here. Everybody you've ever slept with is here, except Jessica. She's off wandering the earth, righting wrongs. You'll never see her again. And that leaves Tom and Margie and Rod and Bill and Ellen and Paul and Shelley and Frank, Lisa, Becca, Tamra, Justin, Everett, Kurt, Mina, Tabby, Klein, Reagan, Merritt, Janet, Luther, Jackson, Tashandra, Dante, Matt, Violet, Simon, and on and on and on and on, including Penny, <clears throat> excuse me, including Parrot, Ferris, and Noah. Now those last two, they're a pair again after a few years apart. That's sweet. You don't know the rest. The hangers-on, freeloaders, strangers, moving shadows. The happening is happening at the ancestral home of young, rotund Zane Toombs himself. Poor rich boy, wannabe Satanist. Friend to no one, no matter how cool his digs may be. And they are indeed cool. 
a three-story mansion and an unfinished basement. The basement expands deep into the hillside, an ancient bear den, crumbled arches, moldering catacombs, bat roosts, a portal to Pluto's ballroom. Downhill, a lovely hillside, a copse of spruce trees, boulders, a field where fireweed grows. Farther on lies the bay, ink black under a tilted moon cracked. Moms and pops jetted to Acapulco for the weekend and the mice will riot. Upstairs in the master suite, you've got your cock halfway into that Ukrainian transfer student, the cheerleader, what's her name? And she's throwing her blonde head like a mare, impatient. You're thinking, ouch, and man, this is a hell of a fancy bed. And these sheets are satin? And is that demon-faced headboard mahogany? And good God, what's with the creepy Gothic architecture anyway? And who's that guy walking into the frame? Is it the cheerleader's boyfriend? Uh, what's his name? Captain of the varsity squad? Because that would be very bad. You'd want your steel toe boots for an ape with forearms like he's swinging. No, not the jock. Wait, is that Russo? Definitely looks like Russo, who runs the forklift on the fresh floor of the cannery. Different, though. Filling the doorway, cropped hair, pale complexion, eyeshadow thick enough for a Star Trek cameo, original series. <laughs> features smoothed. His features are smoothed and stretched, plastic, mask-like. Loose, dark shirt and two tight pants tucked into combat boots. He hefts a club or a, a mace, a car axle, something out of a medieval manual of slaughter. Two and a half feet of steel wrapped in barbed wire. Electric tape on the grip. Funny, funny, the photographic detail your brain records in moments of stress. The girl kisses your neck. She hasn't seen the freak, and it's all wrong. Uncanny resemblance notwithstanding, this isn't Russo you were blazing with on the loading dock just yesterday. Not the Russo who's got a thing for the color grader from Caltech. Not the Russo who lost his license drag racing on the park's highway and now needs a lift everywhere. Not the one who's built for a run at the middleweight title but wouldn't hurt a fly. The pacifist, conscientious objector, tofu-munching emo rocker. This Russo has taken an ice pick to the brain and become Mr. Flat Affect. He licks his liver lips, and Gene Simmons would shit a brick at the yellow tongue drooped to that pointy chin. Mr. Flat Affect crosses the room in an awkward lunge, the way a toad suddenly decides to jump. And it's so fast, your breath stops. You roll off the opposite half of that acre of satin, and the club wallops the cheerleader instead of your naked ass. Prior to this moment, you've always considered yourself a bit of a tough guy. Lean, mean, scars on your knuckles from a respectable number of barroom brawls. Only last fall you socked Tom Gorski in the kisser after one wisecrack too many. Dropped him like a bad habit. You're no punk, no wuss, no panty waste. You've had your nose busted plenty, lost some teeth in the bargain. You have also come to the realization you aren't Chuck Norris either. The bludgeoning thuds are a message from the universe. Nah, you're no shark. You're a feeder fish, aren't you? The interloper whacks her a couple of times, lazy, disinterested, and there's blood, a lot of it. All those September hunts when dad shot the caribou with a seven millimeter, and you slashed the dumb beast's throat and its life gushed over your, out over your wellies, this is similar. You make your move and fly to the door. You're howling. Demon Russo would catch you because next to him you're stuck in quicksand. 
but the club gets snagged in a nest of guts and that second or two is all you need to escape. It's dark and the house is a maze. You visited twice during daylight when it was just the Tombs family and everybody in polo shirts and golf slacks, sunny dispositions, dinner on the deck with the gobsmacking view of Settlers Bay. This is the nightmare version of that scenario, the bizarro world iteration. Doors are locked and impenetrable. Music rumbles far below and nobody responds to you screaming bloody murder. An accent lamp floats in a golden bubble way, way down at the end of the hall and you sprint for it. Jagged claws of your shadow outstretched in desperation. Even all these years after the fact, you recall the cheerleader's expression in a smash close-up. Homegirl doesn't even know she's dead. She keeps blinking at you, confused, as she drowns on herself. Your father dies in a parking lot when you're 22. Your mother goes home to Tennessee, sends postcards now and again. The weather's fine. Little brother John, excuse me, little brother joins the Marines like his old man. He earns a bronze star, opens a gun store in Texas, shoots a couple kids who try to rob the joint. The jury decides he's justified. You, you sleep with a lot of women with the light on. You lose your erection whenever you stop to think. There are nightmares. One that returns, recur, excuse me, one that recurs has you as a child in your old bedroom. You stand near the dresser in a poster of Buck Rogers. A skinny hand and then an arm slither from beneath your bed, followed by your father. Except his face is angular and cold with alien emotion. He moves the herky-jerky way a marionette does. He wants your blood. He projects that desire into your thoughts without opening his mouth. You always awaken before he gets you. And hell of it is, you don't know whether it's really a dream or a suppressed memory. So, you drank. We won't even speak of wife one. Wife two is Amy. You stole her from Mac the Slack. Mac jumped off a bridge into Hurricane Gulch. Oh, Amy, baby, who wouldn't? Brunette, Libra, whip smart, hot as fire. Most importantly, she doesn't give a goddamn how screwed up you are, how wild and strange you are, how damaged, or else she cleverly looks past it to the good points. And you have several. Got all your hair, make a decent wage in construction, still cut pretty sharp in a suit. Two of three children tolerate your presence. The dog is also fond. The dog is a German shepherd you named Chip because of a story that science fiction author Bradley Denton wrote when you were a kid. You and Chip go hunting for ptarmigan every fall. The only good thing you can recall sharing with your dad. Last September, you load the guns and drive out to the little Susitna. You follow a game trail away from the park's highway, three, maybe four miles, where the spruce trees grow tall and close in, a mossy shadowland. You crack yourself a cool beer, Pop against a tree, loyal hound at your feet, the sun a pale reflection against the underside of the canopy. Even sweet wife fades into the ether for a while. Chip looses a stream of piss and whines, and then you hear, echoing from not too far away in the arboreal deeps, the weirdest bird call ever. It's 
the laughter of a raven mimicking a man, mimicking a, a hyena. It cackles your name and it calls to Chip, come here, doggy. This lone cry becomes a chorus, converging. Shotgun or not, you and the dog run for your lives. That shrieking laughter pursues you nearly back to the car. You break the speed limit gunning for home and Chip cowers in the floor, on the floorboard, bangs bared as if some horror rides the back seat. We're waiting for you, pal. We know where you live. Zane Toombs got on the Tony Robbins bandwagon and dropped 60 pounds. Tried to make something of himself. Didn't try all that hard. Heartthrob handsome after the sea change, but fat wasn't truly the root of his problems. Something dark and rotten was going on in that noggin. Cat teeth and a chiseled physique couldn't mitigate the filth beaming from his eyes. He lived alone in that mansion on the hill after Mr. and Mrs. died. Spent his nights at the Bohemian Cocktail Lounge, hitting on the young lasses. Became known as the Rohypnol Romeo. Bought himself an indictment with a suggested sentencing range of 25 to life, if it stuck. He blew town and disappeared to the bottom of the FBI most wanted list. He sends you a letter. Day before Christmas. First contact after a decade of silence. This letter arrives in a grimy, blood-soaked envelope. Some of the message, a Mexico City fun, phone number, initials ZT, smudgy fingerprints all over the stationery. You are wary but intrigued. There's a $25,000 reward, which you don't give a shit about. Money isn't a problem for you anymore. You have questions. You have a redaction scribble in the middle of your brain where dreadful memories once clamored for release. You want to talk to fat boy tombs want to wring his neck, beg him to put the pieces together. He's living under an assumed name in a fancy hotel on the outskirts. Keeps a whole suite to himself. His transformation impresses, dresses in a linen suit, smokes French cigarettes, seems at ease in his own expat skin. But you recognize him, the real him, instantly. You don't talk about what he's done. Don't mention the fact FBI and Interpol are on the case. Could be staking out the joint at that very moment, recording everything for the blockbuster trial. That's a foregone conclusion. It's written in the stars. You're here for other unfinished business. He pours two glasses of mescal, no lime, no nothing, utters a prayer, downs his, then flashes a revolver and says, he's asked you here to apologize or to kill you. It depends. Actually, actually, that's a lie. That's a lie. He's already made up his mind. He wants to chat first, so drink your drink, old friend, and you do. Once everything's cozy, you've chuckled over the hijinks of days of yore, his finger relaxes from the trigger, and you ask, what the hell, man? What happened way back when in the bear den beneath the house? He smiles sadly, professes ignorance, but his eyes belong to a snake. And though you ask again nicely, he refuses to answer. Not truly. He was a child then. He dicked about with childish things. Any real diabolism that resulted is purely coincidental. The room spins as you go belly up. <laughs> they don't call the bastard the Rohypnol Romeo for nothing. And the half dozen heart <clears throat> and the half dozen beats until the world goes dark, you watch a tremor pass through him. Crown to toe. And your subconscious wants to make an impossible connection. It wants to suggest 
he's a finger puppet of some primordial malevolence, and it's showtime. The flesh of his face snaps upward, much as a bank robber pulls on a nylon mask, except from the wrong fucking direction. Hello to Mr. Flat Affect, your old friend. Okay. We'll mention wife one briefly. Her post-coital cigarette didn't package with a what are you thinking. Hers was a beady-eyed scowl and a demand to know what your damage was. What had happened to fuck you up so thoroughly up? She couldn't begin to fathom. Were you molested as a child? Did daddy piss in your cornflakes? Did something awful transpire to make you so afraid of the dark? You loved her. You desired her happiness with the intensity of a death wish. But you couldn't tell her what was buried in your heart. Couldn't articulate the queasy blackness that flooded your mind whenever you tried. If you knew where she'd run off to after your marriage fireballed, you could call her up, tell her about the time you visit Mexico to meet a childhood chum, and come to, taped hand and foot upon the ledge of a marble tub, an IV needle in your femoral artery, half your blood oozing drip by fucking drip through a tube into gallon bags, while classical music plays. And there's a muttered conversation that you can't understand, and not because blood pressure drop causes your ears to ring, which it does, nor because the voices are muttering in Spanish. Uh-uh. It's because whatever language is formed by this combination of glottal stops, clicks, and liquid hisses isn't human. You manage to peel free of the tape, slick with fluids as it is, the heat of the room, and slide over the rim of the tub into a heap. You vomit. And, yeah, that's what happens. You keep crawling toward the light. It's all you can do. Coherent thought is water through a dribble glass. It just makes a mess on your shirt. And three of them stand in the parlor with your host. They wear variations on the face of the grave in very nice suits. There's a naked body curled up on a rubber mat, and the body is bound in barbed wire. And one of the men, Armani's suit and snazzy shoes, sips from a red tube inserted at the victim's neck. And everybody pauses to stare at you, including the dead or dying guy. His glassy eyes are wet as you drag yourself past, hand over hand. His eyes reflect your ant-like toil across the killing floor. Maybe he's reenacting Horace Greasley's great escape vicariously through you. Maybe he's already there. The front door swings open and uniformed men burst through, screaming, Policia! Their assault rifles start flashing and the room fills with clouds of dust and smoke. You crawl onward past threshing jackboots and smoldering shell cases. Explosions and screams continue unabated. It goes on and on and on. Longest movie scene you've ever been in. And later, at the hospital, a tall, handsome American sits at your bedside. Tubes everywhere, but at least the fluids are going into you this time. The man introduces himself as Agent Justin Steele. He flashes a badge and declares who, whom he works for, although none of it sticks in your consciousness. You're wrapped in a cocoon of drugs and shock. He lights a Rubios, starts a pocket recorder, and says to tell him everything you know. Start at the beginning, in Alaska, when you're a kid. You comply, half expecting his face to deform at any moment. It takes a while to relate this tale. It takes an eon, in fact. And Agent Steele, he doesn't interrupt you. And when you finish, he thanks you for your service to your country. Best to never speak of this incident again. Toombs was shot resisting arrest for extradition to the USA and uh, so forth. You're weak and fading, yet you clutch his sleeve 
and ask, what's it all about, man? What were the flat affects, and where do they come from, and why you, lowly you, were lured to Mexico, and you know what the answer is before it doesn't come? You have so many damn theories burning a hole in your imagination, and it could be you babble about space vampires and demonic possession and Count D, his own bad self. Steele, he just smiles as if the cigarette comes in his hand comes with a blindfold. He leans in close and whispers that he's seen all this before, and it's always worse than you think. He says, it no longer matters. Go home, screw your wife, pet your dog, relive your glory days with a six-pack and a bowl. The fat lady is working on her arpeggios. Your, butter, your buddy Felix, an ex-naval intelligence officer with connections across the U.S. and Europe, and who also doses himself daily with LSD and vaporized marijuana while listening to talk radio, won't permit dogs into his trailer because everybody knows the ID chips implanted at the veterinarian's office are military-grade transceivers beaming info to spy satellites. He has a theory about Mr. Flat Affect, and it's insane. And you also think it has merit. Felix disappears one day leaves a roach smoldering in an ashtray, a spackle of blood and a tight patter on the, pattern on the ceiling directly above his easy chair. The police park a van across the street from your apartment for a month. Nobody ever contacts you. The power goes dead after midnight, and you lie there, a bundle of twigs, staring out the window, praying for the town lights, any of them, to return. Only stars the black body of darkness. Chip pads in, muzzle pointed at you. He is a pure black shadow. That's when you begin to cry. Terror squeezes tears from your ducks. Amy grips your shoulder, says she has something to tell you, baby. You know the jig is up. The power's never coming back on. You've seen the last of the light. Amy and Chip died years and years ago. You close your eyes and visualize the faces at Tomb's basement party, the faces in that death room at the Mexico City Hotel. The images move with the sluggishness of a dream. Your friends and enemies only watch, pop-eyed and motionless, as you flee the brute at his club. Some observers wear the demented unmask that drips with earth from the grave. They might have loved you or hated you before the rostrum made its pith stroke. Now, they grin as you run, your bare feet slapping a treadmill that bores endlessly through a cosmic honeycomb. None of you are going anywhere. about 10 minutes we'll take a break have a drink uh, KGB lets us do this for free and the only thing they ask is that you buy drinks so see you in about 10 minutes all right we're gonna get started again all right everybody all right everybody welcome back we're gonna get started with our next reader and uh, 
Just want to thank you all for coming again to KGB Fantastic Fiction. If you uh, if you just walked in or you didn't hear Ellen earlier, uh, KGB Fantastic Fiction is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, and uh, it's been going uh, at this bar here for over a decade. So all it, there's never a cover charge. So all we ask is that you come in and you buy a drink and uh, tip your bartenders. They work very hard. And uh, Dan, hey, Dan's in the back there. Wave Dan. Dan used to be a bartender. Now he works upstairs. There's a cool jazz club up there. So you get a chance to, uh, to check that out as well. I think, it's, I think it's like a secret club, so I wasn't supposed to say that. But then, anyway, uh, so we, we just ask that you uh, buy drinks. And also, uh, Word Bookstore uh, is in the back. Representative uh, Lee, I believe is her name, in the back. Um, she, the Word Bookstore comes here. They, they schlep books. Uh, from Brooklyn or Jersey City. You coming from Brooklyn or Jersey City? Brooklyn. Brooklyn, all right. Brooklyn's in the house. And uh, so, you know, buy a book so she doesn't have to carry him, carry him back, to the, back to the store. Uh, also, because the books are awesome. Um, I think she sold quite a number, by the way. Uh, so, our next author is Paul Tremblay. Uh, I've known Paul for, for a while, and uh, I've, I've uh, read a lot of his work, and, and I love everything, everything that he's done. Um, so Paul Tremblay is the author of five novels, including The Little Sleep, Floating Boy, and The Girl Who Couldn't Fly, which is a young adult novel with Stephen Graham Jones, forthcoming in October, uh, and A Head Full of Ghosts, which is forthcoming in 2015. And I think you're going to be reading from that, is that right? Okay. Uh, he's the author of the short story collection, In the Meantime, and has co-edited five anthologies, including Creatures, 30 Years of Monster Stories, uh, co-edited with John Langdon. And his fiction and essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Times and numerous Years Best anthologies. Here's Paul Tremblay. Paul, let me adjust. I'm a tall bastard, all right? Man. All right. Um, you know, I know me reading after Laird is sort of like Matchbox 20 coming on after the clash, but you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to do what we can with this. Uh, first, I'd like to thank Ellen and, and Matthew and everybody at the KGB for having me back. This is my third time. Um, I love coming here. It's just such a fun event. And thank you all for showing up to see a lot of you know, familiar faces and new faces. You know, just thank you for coming out. It's, you know, for a writer, there's nothing, you know, short of seeing your book being purchased, you know, there's nothing more, that, there's not a bigger charge than seeing people come to a reading, because I have read for one person before. <laughs> um, and it's a, a huge honor to read with my very good friend Laird, who continues to set the bar impossibly high for all of us. Uh, all right, uh, before I get started, um, just one announcement, I'd like to direct your attention to the back wall here. See that umbrella? I carried that goddamn thing around New York City all day today. Not one freaking drop of rain. It'll rain, don't worry. You're welcome. I swear it'll rain before the end. Yeah, all right, fine. Um, all right, so as Matthew mentioned, I really I have a couple books coming out soonish. I have a book coming out in October that I co-wrote with Stephen Graham Jones. It's a young adult novel. Stephen Graham Jones is the most handsome horror writer in the world. Um, he said, well, I, I'm sorry, Laird, but I would bite on Stephen's lip and just hang there. 
so I mean, his his is the only picture going on the book, not mine. Um, and a year from now, exactly a year from now, my novel, A Head Full of Ghosts, is coming out with William and Morrow in hardcover. So a year from now, you all have to remember to buy the book. <laughs> no, none of this, yeah, yeah, Paul bullshit. No, seriously, I'm holding you to it. A year from now, you have to buy the book. All right, so I am going to read a scene from A Head Full of Ghosts. Uh, the book, if I can be obnoxious, I'm going to call it my postmodern feminist secular exorcism novel. How's that? <laughs> um, in the novel, it, it opens with a, a, a best-selling sort of paranormal romance author interviewing a woman who's in her early 20s named Meredith, uh, or Mary for short. And this best-selling author purchased the rights to Meredith's story. When Meredith was eight years old, her 14-year-old sister, Marjorie, may or may not have been possessed. Um, they did participate in a uh, reality television show where the exorcism or maybe exorcism was, you know, put, uh, you know, was broadcast as well, and there was all kinds of scary and goofy stuff that happened after that. So uh, the scene I'm going to read is pre the reality show, and the scene is Mary recounting what it was like as an eight-year-old living with her 14-year-old sister who may have had a psychotic break or may be possessed. Um, I am awaiting my edits for this novel, so I really hope the scene actually doesn't get cut. <laughs> Marjorie's door must have been open because I heard her humming a song. It sounded like the saddest of sad songs, with notes floating down the staircase and into the foyer like dead leaves. I reached up over my head and put my finger over our front door's peephole just in case someone was on the stoop trying to look in at us. I whispered through the door, who's out there? But didn't hear anyone respond. I knocked twice for luck. I zigzagged my way up the stairs, tapping the wall, then walking diagonally to tap the railing slats while stepping on the black stairs as though they were the keys to a piano. On the first landing, I said, what's that song? On the second landing, I said, stop humming. You'll get it stuck in my head. When I made it upstairs, Marjorie was not in her bedroom but was instead lounging in the small sunroom that overlooked the front yard. She was all folded up on the puffy love seat and fiddling with her phone. She wore short red shorts and a black sports bra. She stopped humming after I crashed into the sunroom like, a, like an asteroid. I said, what is that song? Ew, put a shirt on. What's ew? Girls wear this out jogging to, or to the gym all the time. I don't care, I don't like it. Giggling, I reached out and patted the pushed-up tops of her small breasts. I made boing, boing, boing noises and then said, I don't want boobs ever. Mary! Marjorie pushed my hand away, crossed her arms over her chest and laughed. Really and truly laughed for the first time in days, maybe weeks. I melted into relief and the blindest love. She was Marjorie again, my Marjorie. The one who hid under a blanket with me during scary parts of movies. The one who punched neighbor Jimmy Matthews in the nose after he dropped a dead fly down the back of my shirt. The one who made fun of mom and dad and made me laugh hard enough to snort after they'd yelled at me and sent me to my room because I dented the rusty old garage doors with my penalty kicks. Marjorie said, well, sorry, monkey. Girls have boobs. You'll be getting yours in a few years. I'm getting yours in a few years? I mocked screams, covered my chest with my hands and said, gross, no way. That made Marjorie laugh again. Where did you come from? You're such a little goon sometimes. I know. With my hands spotted on the arm of her chair, I jumped up and down, kicking, out, kicking my legs out behind me, dancing my little goon dance. I asked, how was school? It was great. I didn't go. How come? 
Oh, you know, I'm not feeling well. What's going to the psychiatrist like? I carefully broke up the word into its parts so I wouldn't make a mistake. Marjorie shrugged. No biggie. He asks questions. I answer them like the good little girl. Then I leave the room and wait while he talks to mom. Is he nice? Eh, he's like wallpaper to me, just there, you know? I pictured the psychiatrist covered in the yellow wallpaper of our sunroom. I asked, why are you sitting in here? Maybe mom and dad told her she couldn't spend so much time alone in her room anymore. No reason. I thought about the holes in her bedroom wall and imagined them weeping dust and plaster. I didn't blame her if she'd rather be in the sunroom. Who are you texting? I said it like I knew the secrets of her teen life. Ugh, just some friends, okay? She wasn't looking at me anymore, but stared down at her phone's glowing screen. What friends? Do I know them? Do they have Boston accents like me? Do they eat? Do they like green M&Ms with peanuts inside? You can leave me alone now, she said, but there wasn't much oomph behind it. She really wasn't annoyed or mad. Not yet. I could still push her. Trying to sound playful, I said, this isn't your room, you know. I can be in here too if I want. Unlike her bedroom, or mine for that matter. The small sunroom felt like a safe place with its bright natural light amplified by the cheery yellow walls and its simple cozy rectangular shape. No closets or beds or cardboard houses, no shadows and no places to hide. Here in this neutral space, we were equals. I asked, are you texting Father Wandering? Marjorie's head snapped up and everything in her face furrowed, folded or curled skin turning inside out to reveal a totally transformed and snarling face. My little goon dance died, and I let go of the arm of the chair. Marjorie sighed heavily as though she was the adult here. <sighs> really, Mary, you don't know anything. Stop pretending you do. I do know things. I just heard Mom and Dad fighting about him and, and about you. They're still arguing right now in the kitchen. In the kitchen. Oh, Mom is so mad at Dad. You should hear her, swearing and everything. I stopped talking, but I didn't really stop because my mouth kept moving, lips worming around silent words of self-affirmation. I really heard them, I did. Ugh, you're doing the mouth thing again. Stop it, you're not a baby anymore. The mouth thing. When I was a preschooler, I moved my mouth after, fin after I finished talking. Mom thought it was cute. Dad said my mouth just couldn't keep up with everything I had to say. Marjorie would speak half sentences and then mouth the rest at me. I knew she was only making fun of me, but I would still focus on her moving lips, hoping that she was unknowingly giving away instructions on how to be a proper big girl. I used to overturn the wastebasket in the upstairs bathroom so I could stand on it, look in the mirror, and practice speaking, or practice stopping to speak, without my lips stubbornly fighting for their phantom last words. I thought I'd long grown out of it. Horrified that my mouth had gone rogue again, I said, I know, sorry. I don't know what you heard Dad say, but I didn't talk to the creepy old priest, okay? I didn't say anything. I didn't even say hi to him. He and Dad did all the talking and the stupid praying, and I just sat there. I totally ignored them. Yeah, sure. Our fun sunroom sister time had deteriorated quickly into crumbling pieces so obvious and so there, just like the imperfections of the curling and stained yellow wallpaper on the sunroom walls were there if you looked long and hard enough. Shut up, Mary, and you better start minding your own business. But, but nothing. Stop talking for one goddamn second. Listen. She didn't lean forward. She didn't move her body at all. Her posture remained relaxed with the phone in her hand, and she sounded so matter-of-fact, which made it all worse. 
I know you told mom about our new stories about the growing things. And what was that shit you made up about the growing things taking over the soccer field? I didn't say anything about that. I slumped and shrugged at the same time. I'm sorry. I fought to keep my lips still, to keep from saying or not saying you can't swear, Marjorie. I don't think she ever realized or appreciated all the little things I tried to do for her. Mom told Dr. Hamilton everything you told her, you know. Now he wants to up my meds, turn me into a fucking zombie. I'm sorry, please don't use those words, Marjorie. Stop it, just stop it, listen to me. You tell on me to mom again and I'll rip your fucking tongue out. I jumped backwards and crashed into the wall behind me as though she'd struck me with a fist. We'd play fought all the time. I practically used to go begging for her older sibling abuse as her ignoring me, her not caring that I existed within her vast universe would have killed me. I was the compliant recipient of a fair share of dope slaps, dead arms and dead legs, wrist burns, finger flicks, crow pinches, monkey bites, and twisted clam ears, with maybe the worst being ponytail rodeo. But she never really hurt me. She'd never before threatened to hurt me, either. Marjorie kept texting, fingers crawling over the phone's keyboard screen while talking at the same time. I'll wait until you're asleep, because you never wake up when I'm there. I'm in your room every night, Mary. It's so easy. I imagined her standing over my bed, pinching my nose shut, drawing on my hands, hovering her face close to mine, breathing my breaths. Maybe the next time I'm there, I'll reach into your mouth with pliers. No, wait. I'll just use my fingers, clamp them up real tight, turn my hand into a claw, and I'll pinch that fat, wriggling worm between my fingers and tear it right out of your skull, as easy as pulling dandelions out of the ground. It'll hurt worse than anything you'd ever felt before. You'll wake up moaning around my hand, choking on blood, and seeing white stars of pain literally exploding in your head. And there'll be so much blood, you never realize how much blood there could be. Even knowing what I know now, I'll never forgive Marjorie for what she said to me then, and I'll never forgive myself for staying in the sunroom and taking it all. I just stood there. I'll keep your tongue and put it on a string, wear it like a necklace, keep it close against my chest, let it taste my skin until it turns black and shrivels up like all dead things do. What an amazing fucking thought that is. Your never-ending tongue shrunken and finally stilled. She kept talking and she kept talking. I thought she would never stop. Standing there, I felt the sun pour through the windows, setting and rising on my back. The sunroom had become a sundial, measuring the geological age of my psychological torture. And your mouth, stupidly opening and closing, gaping like a fish drunk on too much air, you'd feel that loss. You'd learn the oldest lesson there is, the lesson of loss. We all learn it eventually. You'd feel that ragged stub of flesh cowering and hiding down by your molars, or maybe your stupid flesh won't have learned anything, and it'll wiggle and stretch toward the vowels and consonants forever out of reach. I stood there, as still and as silent as if my tongue had already been extracted. The flooding black river of blood will be the only thing to ever pour out of your mouth again. No more words. No one will listen to you. That's the worst part, Mary. You will not be able to speak ever again, which means you would never be able to tell anyone about what will happen next to you and everyone else in this house. All the awful, terrible, unspeakable shit that will happen to you, and it will happen to you and to everyone else. I know. I've heard about it, and I've seen it. No one escapes. Marjorie finally stopped talking and texting. She gently placed her phone on the side of the table and folded her hands over her lap. Wide-eyed, 
I stood up against the wall and sobbed into my hands that bravely cut my mouth. Marjorie sighed again. Oh, come on, I'm just kidding. Mary, geez, I'd never do that to you. You know that, right? That made me cry harder because I didn't know that. Not anymore. Okay, that was a mean joke, I know, but it wasn't that bad. Come here. Marjorie pulled, uh, pulled out of her slouch, sat up, and patted an open section of the puffy chair. I stayed where I was, shaking my head and standing against the wall. The sunlight flashed brighter outside, and we both had to squint. Please, Mary, I am sorry. Still crying the kind of tears that don't fall right away, but instead build a wall on the lower lid, making everything blurry, I sidled over and sat down with my back to her like I was supposed to. Marjorie drew a capital letter between my shoulder blades with her finger. Guess the letter. M. I was uncannily good at the back letter drawing game, even in a state of emotional cataclysm. <laughs> Mary, I shouldn't have said all that stuff to you, but I was very upset that you told Mom on me. I thought we were sisters and that we had secrets. She drew an E. How would you like it if I told Mom you came up here pawing my boobs, feeling me up. I said, H? She didn't draw an H. I was flustered. I didn't know what she meant by feeling her up, but I knew her telling Mom about it wouldn't be good. No, H. She drew the letter on my back again, moving slower, adding more pressure. R. Yes, R. What if I told Mom that you were teasing me, spying me, following me around, generally making me crazy? I know she told you that you're supposed to be nice to me to help out. R again. I'm sorry about your boobs. Please don't tell mom on me. I won't tell if you won't tell. Okay. Why? That spells Mary. She'd written an easy word on my back to calm me down. It worked. I wasn't crying anymore, but my eyes felt heavier than ever. Then we have a deal, Miss Mary. Marjorie rubbed her hand over my back like a teacher erasing a blackboard, and she started writing again. Thank you. Thank you, Lair. Thank you, all of you, for coming. Thanks to KGB Bar. Please uh, hang around, buy some drinks, buy some books, uh, bring them up, get them signed, and uh, we'll see you next month. Thanks. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, Sandra Martinez for her audio editing, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.